Good morning, Rogers Park. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm excited that we are going to be starting off a new series this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Phil Adams, and I get to serve here and on the pastoral team, so it's a joy to bring God's Word with you. If you've been here um, over the last seven weeks, we've been in a series called Explore God. We've been asking some of the big questions about life. Is there a God? Is the Bible reliable? And now we're going into a, a new series, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John where John, one of Jesus' disciples, writes a historical and a theological account of Jesus' life. But what, what makes this especially, what we're going to be looking at especially and specifically is what are called the I am statements of Jesus. Very simply, when John wrote this gospel, one of the all-encompassing goals he had was to reveal who Jesus is so that today we might know and believe. He wrote this gospel, he wrote the historical and theological account so that today we might know and believe who Jesus is, so that you may know and you may believe. So these I am statements, you've seen some of them up on the screen, these I am statements are written to reveal who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He said, I am the true vine. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at each of these statements. And we're going to see what Jesus is communicating to us about himself. So Rogers Park, are you ready? Have you got your pencils sharpened? Get your crash helmets on. Please turn to John chapter 6. If you've got a Bible there, please turn to John chapter 6. If you've got one of the house Bibles out at the back, it's page 520, 520. Otherwise, John chapter 6. And when you find John chapter 6, keep your finger in it. Because before we we read it, I want to just jump into this. Before we jump into this morning's passage, I want to give a little bit more of a, a background an introduction to these statements, the I am statements of Jesus, because what gives each of these statements incredible weight is that they all hearken back to a passage in the Old Testament where God reveals himself. In Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament, we read about God choosing a man called Moses to accomplish a task, and it was a really big task. God's people, the Israelites, have been slaves in in Egypt for 400 years, and now God says, I have heard your cries, I've heard your pleas, so God chooses Moses to use in bringing about their freedom. But Moses asks a question of God, he says, if I go to the people of Israel, and I say that the God of your fathers sent me, and then they ask me, what is your name? What, What should I say? And God's response is very intentional because the reason the Israelites might ask what is God's name is because after 400 years living in a society with many gods and a culture where all the gods were legitimate in some way, the Israelites may not remember who their God really is. They may not have the confidence to follow him and to trust him with their lives. They want to know who he is. Can he protect us? Can he sustain us? So God responds to Moses' question. What will I tell them if they ask who you are? 
And God responds in such a way to distinguish himself from all other gods made by human minds and human hands. And God says, tell them, I am who I am. God says, tell them, I am sent you. And if you've heard this statement of God's declaring his identity before, or maybe you're here and you're hearing this statement of God's identity for the first time, but you have the thought like, I do, God, I don't want to be facetious, but is that a statement that you'd like to expand on a little bit? (laughs) Even the grammar. God says, tell them I am sent you. One of the things that we desperately need in our lives is to ignite or to reignite a view of God that is fitting to who he is. One of the things we need in our lives is to ignite, or maybe it's for you this morning, it's reignite a view of God that is fitting with who he is. We need to grapple and stretch ourselves to understand God as he is so that we'll trust him. When trusting means obeying, when trusting means waiting, when trusting means singleness, when trusting means leaving, when trusting means staying, when trusting means generosity, when trusting means less, when trusting means living far from family, when trusting God means risk. What we desperately need in our lives is to ignite or reignite a view of God that is fitting to who he is so that we'll trust him enough to obey him. Tell them, I am sent you. When we describe something, the assumption is that at some point there will be nothing more that can be said. When we describe something, the assumption is that at some point we'll just keep talking, but at some point there'll be nothing more that we can say. Growing up, I had a, a corgi. Do you know what corgis are? Oh, wow. Yes. Corgi's a dog. <laughs> it's a type of dog. It's what the queen owns. But we called, our, we called our corgi Bambi. And I only realized writing this that Bambi was a deer in Disney. So we have a corgi, a dog called Bambi. And if you asked me to tell you about him, I could, but I could only... I was thinking of putting a picture about, but I didn't. I could only tell you about him for so long. There really isn't that much I could say about him. He was short. They're kind of long. They're furry and fat. With Bambi, the assumption would be very much true. At some point, there will be nothing more I could say about Bambi. And this is the same for everything that we see, whether it be corgis or cars, last Monday or mountains. The assumption would be true. At some point, there will be nothing more to say, and yet God is not like that. In fact, all the words and all the languages of the world put together wouldn't be enough to say all that could be said about God. All the words in the world with all of their meanings wouldn't be enough to paint an accurate picture of all that God is. All the analogies, all the comparisons could only say so much but not enough. Because hear this, the creator has always more depth and more potential than that which is created. The imagination of any creator of anything is always more complex than that which is created. And so God being the creator of everything means God exists outside of everything. 
He exists outside of our words. He exists outside of our thoughts. Our words and our thoughts are enclosed within creation. And God is bigger. I am a man. I need air. God needs nothing. I will die. God will never. I began. God didn't. I turned 30 years old this week. God forever is. I am in creation. God is outside of creation. I am restrained by time, by my body, by my brain. God is unrestrained by time, undeterred by physical limits, and unrestrained in knowledge. Nothing can bend him. Nothing can mold him or hold him or stop him or age him or surprise him or creep up in him or shake him. Untouchable unless he decides to be touched. Unfindable unless he decides to be found. God is absolute as in he is not dependent on anything outside of himself. Augustine said, God is an ocean of boundless being. And God, when God refers to himself as I am, he is saying the one thing nobody or nothing else in the entire realm of reality can say, I just am. I had no beginning and I will have no end. I am unstoppable. An ocean of boundless, unmoldable, unholdable, unstoppable, eternally present being. God had to create the earth so we could understand he's like a foundation of everything. God had to create rivers so that we could understand God is like a spring from which everything flows. God had to create mountains so that we could understand that God will not be moved. The boundless, the moldable, unholdable, unstoppable, eternally present being. I Um, And then the incarnation. Isn't this beautiful, Roger's part? And the incarnation, Jesus, is when the eternal God becomes. When the eternal I am says, I am here. When the immovable moves into the neighborhood. When the unholdable gives hands to be held when the unstoppable stops to talk. God exists outside of our words, outside of our thoughts. Our words and our thoughts are closed, enclosed within creation. And yet when God entered creation, he opened up a way for us to know him. Not him in his fullest, not him in his entirety. God chose to reveal himself in a way that was not fitting of his majesty, but in a way that we could grasp. And that is what this series is about. That God chose to reveal himself in a way that we could grasp. When God moved into the neighborhood and stopped to talk, what did he say? When the indescribable chose to limit himself with our words, which words did he choose? When the unimaginable limited himself to our imagination, how far did he stretch us? When the indescribable chose to paint pictures of himself using pictures familiar to our lives, which pictures did he use? He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. And this morning, we are going to look at the first of Jesus' I am statements when he said, I am the bread of life. Say it with me, everybody. He is the bread of life. Let's read John chapter 6. 
We're going to read John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, and then jump to verse 24. We're going to read the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a good one. (laughs) Okay. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here, and he's got five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves, and when they had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him and force him to make him the king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. Jump down to verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking after Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I said, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? That work, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father, and he gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we come with so much expectation to your word, knowing that this this immovable creator of the universe spoke and revealed himself through these words, God. So we thank you that you reveal yourself to us now and today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit enlightening us and opening our eyes to truth. So God, would you do that even more and more today? Refresh us, God, in your truth. God, refresh us on who you are, God, so that we may better be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Erling Kage, I don't know how to say his name. He's Norwegian. He's a Norwegian explorer. 
who was the first person to ever reach the, the South Pole alone. You can maybe see a picture up on the screen in a second. It's a picture that he took on his way towards the South Pole. For 50 days, he was alone because he went all by himself. He had no radio contact. He had nothing. He just him and his backpack, and he set off without a soul to speak to. He walked, and he walked, and he walked south. His fingers froze, his toes froze, and he kept walking. And at times, he wanted to turn back or just stop and curl up. And maybe in a kind of delirium, he imagined as he was walking a man on the moon looking down on the earth. And he imagined this man on the moon seeing what would look like a boy in a blue anorak trudging further and further across the ice, only setting up his tent in the evenings. And the next day, the boy would emerge from his tent again, and the ritual would just repeat. The man on the moon watched the boy head in the same direction day after day, week after week. And Erling thought, man, the man on the moon must think I'm nuts. (laughs) And then one late late afternoon, he says, just before he was about to pitch his tent for the day, he imagined the man on the moon lifting up his gaze and looking a little bit north where he would see millions of other people leaving tiny houses early in the day only to sit in traffic for a few minutes or an hour and then arrive at larger buildings where they would remain indoors for the rest of the day, returning via the same traffic jam back to their homes. And at home they would eat dinner and they'd watch the news year after year with the only difference over time being that some of those people, perhaps the most ambitious of them, would one day move to a slightly larger house to spend their nights. And with that thought... Walking south, he felt a little bit calmer. (laughs) He felt a little more content. And he felt a little less crazy. In the passage that we read, what's happening is the crowds have set their sights on Jesus and they're chasing him down. In chapter 6, we read how a huge crowd was following Jesus. 5,000 men, easily 10,000 people, including women and children. And when the crowd became hungry, Jesus inquires of his disciples, where can we get food for all of these people? And all the disciples can find is this little boy with five loaves and two fish, which Jesus takes and he multiplies. He multiplies the bread, he multiplies the fish, and he multiplied the bread and the fish to the point that everyone had eaten as much as they could and they still had loads left over. And the Jewish crowd under Roman occupation got so excited they couldn't hold back their excitement. In verse 15, we see their intentions. They wanted to make him king. And it says, it says this, Jesus, perceiving then that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain to be by himself. They wanted a king. They wanted Jesus to be king. And they were going to claim him as their king. Maybe he can do other tricks, but even if he can't, at least we won't go hungry. But Jesus had no interest in being a king as it was understood in the minds of the crowd. So Jesus withdrew himself away from the people to be alone. And then both he and his disciples go across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And if we jump down to verse 24, we read that the next day the crowds, realizing Jesus is gone, they set off again, chasing him down, and they aren't going to give up so easily. So they jump into the boats as well, and they head to Capernaum. 
And it says at the end of verse 24 that they were seeking Jesus. And then in verse 26, they, they find him and Jesus confronts them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You're not here out of wonder and intrigue. You're here to get more bread. Jesus, yeah, we're, we're intrigued. We're intrigued how can we can get more. What's wrong with more? Should we not want more? Do we not go to work every day trying to get a little bit more? A home that's a little bit bigger, a car that's a little newer. Jesus, are we not here to get more? Who, know who, this, who knows who this lady is? Well, yeah, a few people. Marie Kondo, and he's got his hand up. Who knows? Let's see. Who, oh, yeah. She has a following. We've done a little bit. Our tiles are very nicely folded, roundly. It's very good. I have not said goodbye to any clothes. Thank them for teaching me something about myself. This is Marie Kondo. If anyone doesn't know, she has a show on Netflix where she teaches us how to tidy our homes. And she has a remarkably simple story, Marie. As a little girl, she read all her mom's home magazines in Japan. And then she, as she got a little older, she had, increasingly, had an increasingly unsettledness about her family's possessions. She says she was disquieted by them. <laughs> so she began researching how to tidy up. And on her 18th birthday, listen to this, on her 18th birthday, she spent the day volunteering at the National Library of Japan because they were having a day of tidying, decluttering, and reorganizing of the books. <laughs> she wanted to go when she was younger, but they only let her in when she was 18. So on her birthday, she was there. After college, everything started to snowball as she became a full-time tidier in people's homes. Sounds incredible. But what moved her from the realm of home help to international home gurry was when she was tidying one day. And then she realized and she came upon the belief that tidying isn't a function of our physical space, it is a function of our souls. That's what she said. But what I think is fascinating about Marie Kondo is the reason why her quietly released book has sold six million copies despite the fact that she has done very, very little publicity. And the reason is that she caught hold of what you could call a cultural moment. A New York Times article says this, by the time Marie's book arrived, America had entered a time of peak stuff when we have accumulated a mountain of disposable goods which we have not learned to dispose of. We are caught between an older generation that bought a phone in 1970 for $25 that is still working and a generation that has bought $600 iPhones knowing they will have to be replaced within two years. We have the 1970s phone in a drawer and the 2018 iPhone and we can't dispose of either. We are burdened by our stuff. We're drowning in it. And what this is saying is that we have more stuff than we have ethics to know what to do with our stuff. 
We have more stuff than we do a belief system that gives us peace about our stuff. Our souls are uneasy with our stuff. And then Marie Kondo comes along. <laughs> She's gone. It's just me up here. <laughs> She was doing that. The be- <laughs> this is what she says. <laughs> this is what she says. The best way to choose what to keep and what to throw away is to take each item in one's hand and ask the simple question, does this spark joy? If it does, keep it. If not, dispose of it. Does this spark joy? She says... She does not believe that you should get rid of everything. Rather, what she thinks is you can own as much as you like or you can own as little as you like as long as every possession brings you true joy. She says joy is the only goal. And I, I kind of like it. I'm all for getting rid of rubbish, and I appreciate the, the simplicity of keeping the things that we actually love. And this might be a great way to declutter or fold our tiles, but the thing she points to is a larger problem, which is, as she says herself, our possessions can only spark joy. That's it. Sparks shine bright and then feed fast. Sparks last a moment. Sparks perish. Sparks are hot then cold. Marie says herself, listen to this. I have yet to see a house that lacks sufficient storage. The real problem is that we have far more than we need or want. Why? Because we are addicted to the sparks of joy that our possessions bring, even if the spark only lasts a moment. Jesus' problem isn't that the crowd was still hungry. It's that they were focused only on that which won't fill them. Sparks, bread. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know what this verse means? It means that there is a hunger in our lives that bread won't satisfy. We can get the decluttered house, the clothes, the car, the job, the experiences of none of it is even in the same category as what we need. It's like drinking water and never eating food and wondering why our bodies are shutting down. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A theologian, Merce Vol, says it better than I could. He says, one of the greatest temptations, equally hard to resist in abundance and in want, is to believe and act as if human beings live by bread alone. As if our entire lives should revolve around the creation, the improvement, and the distribution of worldly goods. If so, we'll either spend our days serving false gods or turn the one true God into a mere bread provider and we'll still go hungry. Verse 26, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Then in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. With Jesus talking so much about bread, he stirs in the minds of his Jewish listeners what happened in their history many years ago after Moses freed them from slavery. Not long after they were free, God's people found themselves out in the wilderness hungry. 
And so God provided bread, manna. Exodus chapter 16 says, Every morning when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said, What is it? So Moses had to tell them, This is the bread that God has given you to eat. Gather as much as you like. And some gathered armfuls. Some people went in and out of their tents collecting more and more. Others just thought, I'll just get a handful. But Moses said, the only commandment is don't try and keep any of it over for the next day. God, every day will supply what you need. And yet they tried anyway. They hid it in their tents. Only to wake up to find the bread had bred worms and gone rotten. Exodus 16, verse 21, morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Every day, that which they did not pick up melted away. And if they tried to keep it, it went rotten. Either way, what they did not eat either melted or it rotted away. And what the Israelites were seeing wasn't entirely puzzling because what they were seeing was simply time sped up. Because at the end of the day, all bread melts. All bread rots. Everything perishes. It might take one day for our milk to go off. Or one year for our clothes to go out of fashion. Two years until our iPhones are too slow. Five years until our cars are outdated. Ten years until our jobs are redundant. Twenty years until our expertise is lacking. Thirty years until we are living alone. Forty years until our bodies are shutting down. Fifty years before our children's names have become a struggle to remember. Sixty years until our experiences are forgotten. Seventy years and most of us won't be here. What the Israelites were seeing wasn't entirely puzzling. They were just seeing time sped up. Because everything melts away. Everything perishes. Our cars and our jobs and our expertise and our experiences. So I guess we better just digest as much as we can. I guess we better jump in our boats and chase down whoever or whatever will multiply our bread. Richard Park Marie Kondo was right because there is a connection between our, our physical world and our souls. But the connection isn't that our unsettledness can be solved by tidying or decluttering or by having many things or even just a few. Our unsettledness points to a much deeper issue that our souls are hungry for the imperishable. Why do we keep hoping that sparks will last whether it be a new coat or a new car, because our souls are seeking, they're looking for, they're chasing after something that will last. Church, I am, I'm tired. I am tired of rearranging stuff, stuff, moving stuff from shop, shop shelves to my top shelf. I'm tired of spending in circles and feeling left with nothing. I'm tired of the rat race to get my hands in something only to watch it perish. I'm tired of buying and then figuring out how to tidy. It's like like trying to pick up sand or catch water in my hands. And the expectation that something new will satisfy is increasingly starting to feel like insanity. 
Our souls are hungry for the imperishable. We need something that will not mold, something that will not bend, something that will not break, something that will not rot or stop or age. We need something that's present every morning, every year, in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 70 years or 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years or a million years or a billion years. We were made for something that isn't a spark, something that's not hot then cold, something that's not bright then dark. And Jesus came to say it's not a thing. It's not an object. It's not a possession. It's a person. And he stops to talk. And he's got hands to hold. And he's an ocean of boundless being. He's the foundation of everything. He's the spring from which everything flows. Our hope for eternal life isn't grounded on time going on forever. Our hope for eternal life is grounded on the fact that Jesus is imperishable. He's boundless. He's immoldable. He's unholdable. He's unstoppable. The eternally present being. He ain't ever going anywhere. Nothing can bend him, church. Nothing can mold him, church. Or hold him, or stop him, or age him, or surprise him, or creep up in him, or shake him. He's the only I just am. He's the bread of life. And he says, to feed on me, you just need to believe in me. To be sustained by me, believe in me. When we read Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, I think we sometimes think that it's like Jesus will be like a, like a pill to swallow that will remove our hunger. And then we're confused when we still hunger. And yes, there, there is a deep peace and a sense of satisfaction in knowing God which will only increase when we see him face to face. But I think there will always be a kind of hunger, a kind of want, something, us, something drawing us in. I think in heaven we will have a hunger, but with every meal we will feast on who Jesus is and we'll be satisfied. It will be an eternal feast of hunger for God being satisfied, an eternal feast of hunger for the imperishable being satisfied. So the question, what does, is, what does this mean for your life today? When God provided the Israelites every morning with bread, it came with one commandment. Don't take more than enough for one day. Just take what you need and I'll, I'll be waiting for you tomorrow. And yet they couldn't stop themselves. Why? They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him enough to obey him. They didn't trust him enough to take the risk. Here's the thing. Jesus goes on to say in John's gospel, I came so that you may have life and have it to the full. So at the end of the day, the question really is, do you want more? At the end of the day, the question is, do you really want more? Jesus' problem wasn't that the crowd was still hungry. It was that they were focused on that which won't fill them, sparks, bread. 
Are you here this morning and you want more than bread? And you're starving for more. As if you're only drinking and you're not eating. This book teaches that the only way to get more is to live a life that risks it all on Christ. The only way to get more is to live a life that is full, is to risk it all on Christ. To know him for who he is and to trust him and obey him. Roger's part, I don't say this without feeling the weight of what it means for our lives. But in some sense, I'm up here and I feel a little bit like Moses calling the Israelites, saying, he told me his name, you can trust him. He's the only I am. He's not going anywhere. He's going to provide for you. He's always going to provide for you. He told me his name. Trust him if it means waiting. Trust him if it means singleness. Trust him if it means staying. Trust him if it means leaving. Trust him if it means generosity. Trust God if it means less, lesser comfort, lesser pay, lesser education. Trust him if it means living far from your family. Trust him if it means risk. Jesus said, do not be anxious. Saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear, or where will we live, or will we have room, or will I be single, will I have enough for retirement? For the Gentiles chase after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Church, he's the bread of life. Provision is in his name. So the question is... For everyone, for all of us, what is he calling you to? Not what is safe, not what adds up, not what will give you more money. What is he calling you to? Rogers Park, Park Community Church, what could we be as a community? I can see it. I can see it. I can see us planting churches around the world. I can see us giving more and more room in this room for the people of this community and this city. I can see us having our eyes open to new ways of engaging this city with the gospel. Like Shine last week standing in a house of Biryani with customers walking around and preaching the gospel. I can see it. I can see a community of Christ followers banding together, committing together, to be a family together every day, expecting, needing incredible things from God. Or just part, can we be like the crazy guy heading south on the ice, walking towards the sun? And if there was a man on the moon, could he ask of us, what are they doing? Where are they going? Why are they so different? I can see these guys over here living in circles, but what are those guys living for? They're focused on something. They have a destination in mind. Could a watching world be asking of us, what are they living for? What's feeding them? What's sustaining them? 
How do we live like that? Why are they going there? Why are they risking that? To which we respond, we're okay. He's the bread of life. Provision is in his name. To which we respond, we're okay. He's the bread of life. Provision is in his name. Burgess Park repeated after me. We're okay. He's the bread of life. Provision is in his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you would take a picture as simple as bread and reveal to us, God, who you are. God, I pray this morning, God, that we will rest in who you are, that we will trust you for who you are. And God, we will obey you, knowing you, God, that you will lead us into what it means to live life to the full. God, to find you there and to be sustained by you there, God. May we not be a people that hold back. May we be a people that go and run for you and center our lives around you. In Jesus' name, amen.